Cherie Spillman is the program director at the AIDS Outreach Project in Everett, Washington, which is based in Snohomish County, about 40 minutes north of Seattle. Cherie and the AIDS Outreach Project follow the principles of something called harm reduction, which minimizes the risk of AIDS and other harmful outcomes that are associated with unsafe drug use. I talked with Cherie about this approach and why she loves her job so much and about how we can be more sympathetic towards the most vulnerable people in our communities. I'm Josh Morgan. My conversation with Cherie is coming up next on The Plural of You, the podcast about people helping people. The reason I bring up compassion is to set the stage for Cherie Spielman because she is one of the most compassionate people I've talked with. And that's not just on The Plural of You, I mean, ever. There are several programs like hers across the United States and elsewhere. Not enough, really, but there was something about Cherie that I found incredibly touching. See, our culture projects a lot of negativity onto drugs and people who use them. And people experiencing addiction are often left to suffer, and that's because we refuse to acknowledge what they're going through. Cherie knows this, and she's taken it upon herself to care not only physically, but emotionally for those experiencing addiction. I followed Cherie online for a while now, and a common theme I've noticed in her posts is that she treats her clients like she would want to be treated. She shared stories of sadness over clients dying, and stories of happiness over clients rebuilding their lives. And overall, she's been a real bright spot in my newsfeed, and I'm honored that I finally got to talk with her about her mission. Oh, one quick note before I play her conversation. Uh, for some reason, the audio on Cherie's end dropped out a half second or so a few times while she was talking. So at some points, her voice will suddenly jump forward. Uh, I did my best to correct for that, but just a heads up. Still, it warms my heart to know that people like her exist out there, and I hope you'll learn a thing or two from her like I did. Here's Cherie Spielman, Program Director at the AIDS Outreach Project. So if you wouldn't mind, tell me about the AIDS Outreach Project. What types of services do you provide? Our main purpose is to provide outreach services and uh, community health outreach and outreach services to people who are at the highest risk for contracting HIV and hepatitis, uh, mostly hepatitis C. So that group of people for us are people that inject drugs. So we do a lot of outreach um, in the streets, in the houses, in the camps where people are living who don't have homes right now. Anywhere, pretty much anywhere within our county that we can find people, we try to go to where they are. And then uh, we also have an office where they can come um, to see us. Mainly, we exchange 30 ones for uh, clean sterile ones. And then we do lots and lots of education around taking the best care of someone's body, how they can take care of their body in the best way that they can, whether they're using or not. And a fair amount of um, giving referrals and, and mostly to the same people over and over and over. But yeah, that's that's the gist of what, what we do and what our purpose is, is to get those dirty needles off the streets and get into the hands of the people who need them so that they can better take care of themselves and, and their communities. If those dirty needles are being taken in, then our community is much safer for it as well. But it's at that point of contact where for me, it's about the human being. You know, we, we ask people, you know, how are you? How's your body? Have you, have you eaten today? We try and keep snacks with us. Do you need anything? Do you just need to talk? We've kind of taken it upon ourselves to just 
be good listeners on the sidelines of their lives, <laughs> just to sort of bear witness and, and honor their stories. You know, what gets us there is the draw of the, the dirty needle for the clean needle. But after that, then they have to talk to me. <laughs> and it's surprising to me every single time that I meet a new, a new client or a new person, how eager people are to share their stories to anyone that's willing to listen and find it of interest or find value in that. Many people in our world, many people in my own backyard, they just don't have anybody that can stand by and just listen and honor that. So I get the impression that this project is more of a roving project. Like, I guess you do have an office that people can come to, but are you in the office or out of the office more? It's probably 50-50 at this point. It used to be we were out of the office a lot more than we were in, but we have so many people using our services that us to go around and be mobile. But where we go oftentimes is out like in the sort of rural areas where there's little tiny towns of a few hundred people or a thousand people when, when we travel out and about. How did you get involved in this type of work in the first place? I have been clean and sober for many years. And when I went to school in the late 80s, early 90s, I really, really, really wanted to be a drug and alcohol counselor. And then I really wanted to be a family therapist because I thought that was really valuable. Because of your experience? Yeah, just because I had been um, clean and sober a few years and knew what it was to me. And so I went to school and then I ended up actually doing work, um, intensive tenant support with people with developmental disabilities coming out of the institution and living in the community on their own, but, but needing staffing. And then I tried working in a treatment center for a little while and hated it. Drug and alcohol treatment. I hated it. Really? Why is that? Because I just felt like many people were there court-ordered, and when they came to me and a counselor, they had to lie to me so that I wouldn't report that they had relapsed and they could get through the court systems, and they couldn't be 100% honest about what was going on because, you know, if the court system knew or their probation officer knew, then then they would be non-compliant and, you know, maybe they would have to serve time in jail or whatever it was. And I couldn't stand being in a position where people couldn't tell me the truth because I'm a firm believer that, you know, we're only as sick as our secrets. And if, if you don't have somebody in the world to, to be able to tell the truth to, then that can validate you just as a human being, then it's harmful. It's, it, I just felt like I was not helping. I was injuring more than I was helping. So it just didn't work for me. I just hated it. <laughs> I then went to work for a year as a medical office assistant for Virginia, the great big healthcare systems and hospitals in Seattle, and was the medical office assistant for psychiatry and chemical dependency. And I loved that, except for my hands were tied and I couldn't be one-on-one -on -one with people. And that's where I know that I work best. <laughs> You had a friend that referred you to the job at the AIDS Outreach Project. Is that right? Yeah. And she was going to get married and move away. And she called me out of the blue and said, you have to quit your job and you have to come up here and take over because I know you can do it and it would be great. You'd be the perfect person for the job. So I did. 
that was in 1996. So it was 20 years ago this month that I started there. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. My husband always says, you know, in a profession where people burn out in an average of two years, I still thrive there. I think it's probably because I look at it very differently than most. Yeah. You mentioned when we were talking earlier that you you love what you do. And that's why I wanted to talk to you for so long, because uh, it just comes through and everything that I've seen you write and say. So I'm well, yeah, I'm just wondering, why do you love your job so much? Part of it, it kind of boils down to, I really think in, in the world that we live in, first, I just thought it about my own life, but now I see it in the world that we live in, that there are not enough emotionally safe places for people to be. And I was healing from, you know, a, a bunch of hurts for, of, that, that I sustained in my kidhood. <laughs> it became really apparent to me that I, I wanted to be one of those people that could set sacred space for other people, at least while they're with me, could be who they are and know that they're okay. That was my goal, was to set a safe emotional place. Wherever I go, I try and just be a safe emotional place for other people because it was so important for me. That was the only way that I could heal. I didn't need people to tell me what to do. Um, and I never want to be one of those people that tells people what to do. I I really just I'm I just really feel it's important to honor people where they are and to know that their spirit is wise and whatever they're here to teach me, I need to be aware of and learn. In doing that, I need to try and put my judgment aside and see them shine brightly even if they can't see themselves shine brightly. And what I've discovered is when I address people or I meet people or I, I'm with people, they sort of rise to the occasion. <laughs> they rise to that level. And for a moment, they feel okay. So for me, it's not about them taking something away from me. It's about me being able to offer what I have. And certainly, you know, I'm not perfect. And there are plenty of people who don't find me perfect. <laughs> But I, for me, it's just important to be able to provide a safe place, a safe place where someone can be who they are. And for me to be able to watch them be okay, even if they're just with me and they're okay while they're with me, it means the world to me because I know most of their lives, at least the people that I work with, most of the rest of their lives, there's no safety. Addiction is addiction and it comes with many faces. and. And when I listen to people's stories, which I'm always honored to do because I love to hear people's stories, how they came to be, where they came from, what they've made it through, it empowers me to empower them. And sometimes to empower, all I have to do is just sit and listen with my mouth shut, (laughs) which is not always easy for me. Oh, I could see that. Yeah. They tell you things and you immediately have your own ideas, but it's better to be quiet a lot of times. Yeah. Sometimes I just want to shake. Stop. Just stop doing that. Mm-hmm. But it works better if I go, well, you know, how, how is that working for you? Or have you considered this or, or not, or maybe not at all. Some, I do a lot of telling people you're very wise and you're very resourceful and I know that you'll figure it out. And sometimes me and they just are, they just are stunned that I would say that. And they, 
say thank you. That taught me right quick that mostly people just need somebody to stand there and see what's really going on and and encourage them to just do their best and, and know that it's their story and I can't write their story. Something that occurred to me a while back, and I don't have any evidence to back this up other than my own observations, I guess, but it, it seems like so many people that struggle in our world, it's because at some point they got the idea that they're bad people and they've never been able to shake that. So they, you know, they have to retreat to these other methods of escape, you know, like drugs. Is is that something that you would say is true in your experience? I absolutely, I do. I think from the time people are little, especially some of the folks who have the biggest issues, the biggest problems that's hindering their wellness. Sometimes I think that, that those folks, yeah, other people took the power from them as children because the other people didn't know how to get their own or that they, they were abused in some way to conform to the abuse in order to survive, you know, and then you get used to people taking parts of you and then you don't know how to keep it. So even when those people are gone, then you just continue to give parts of yourself away and, and it just keeps you wounded and makes you feel, yeah, like you're worthless, like you're not worthy. If people treat you like you're unworthy, then you start to feel unworthy, and then you just conduct yourself like you're unworthy, and nobody ever stops to think that that was a process, and that process has to be sort of ran backwards to, to heal. It's not just something people can go, oh, okay, I'm worthy now. Once it's ingrained in you, it's ingrained in you. So, yeah, I do. I see a lot of that. And so... Part of my work that's just that makes it so easy for me is that I don't have a problem seeing people as being worthy. I think that people are convinced that they're unworthy and not okay and worthless. And, and I think that that's not true. I think everybody has value. So I, I can imagine a lot of people come to you and maybe it's almost like they just become sponges because they don't have that emotional outlet anywhere else. But I'm, I'm sure you also get people that, you know, maybe they come to you just because they need a service and they, they act hard about it. Yeah, we again, I see a lot of people who, I don't know, they soak it up. They soak it up, certainly. But, I, but the way that I give it out, I just want to remind people that they're worthy. Along with my own clear boundaries and along with calling bullshit when I think it's bullshit, people start to have respect for that. Because it's not done in a in a mean way. It's it's done in a kind way with a lot of love, but also saying, look, you know, I respect myself enough to not be blown over by this story, but I respect you enough and tell you when I don't think that you're being truthful. And people respond. And oftentimes the I think what people do soak up is just unconditional love. If I can hug somebody and they let me have seconds. I know they're just soaking it up. And I got plenty of that. I got plenty of that to give because my cup runneth over. I keep my own cup running over. <laughs> <laughs> so if they just need a hug or they just need a, a minute of time, it's powerful. So that most of the time, I think that people who are injecting drugs and a lot of folks who don't have homes who are one reason or the other living in their car or the streets or camps or whatever, I think the general public forgets those folks are kind of societal throwaways. 
but they're humans and they need physical touch and, and a hug. And they need that probably even more than the rest of us at times. So that's the part that I can feel people soak up, even if it's just a touch on the arm or a touch on the shoulder. And I do it a lot because I see the response and it feels good to me to give it almost. It almost energizes me more than them. I think sometimes. <laughs> uh, I'm changing subjects a little bit, but I haven't asked about what your intake process is like. I guess I, I've never been exposed to a program like that. I'm just trying to picture how it works. So. Let's pretend you're using drugs and um, you started using needles for one reason or another. People do lots of harm to their bodies just with the needle, just without the drug. Oftentimes, people will have one or two, and they'll use them until the numbers are worn off. And the drug's usually heroin, is that right? Most of the, most of the time, it's heroin. It's, it's oftentimes heroin and methamphetamine. And then there are a, you know, a few other things. Let's say then you you muster up the courage and you're going to try out the exchange. So all you have to do is show up during our open hours. Maybe you call and find out what our hours are. Or maybe you just show up because your friends have told you. We introduce ourselves and we get a first name usually because just so we can keep people straight. We like to be a little more personal when we see people again. They bring their used syringes up to our to the table. We have a table that we exchange at. Like, and they put, they count them out into the sharps container, and then we offer them the same number that they just gave us. And then we also talk about um, vein care and offer uh, water bottles for clean water, because oftentimes people will share their water when they're using, and you can, it's disease prevention to not share your water, because with heroin, well, with methamphetamine too, you have to add water to it. And then heat it with heroin. You have to heat it so that it becomes a liquid. And they pull that up into the syringe and, and inject that into their body. So we also have tourniquets and we offer alcohol wipes. Several of our folks are sex workers as well. They do sex work to, to get by. And so we have three condoms, just a big jar of them that sits on the counter that people can help themselves to. So at that point of contact, then, is when we start to talk to people about, you know, are you using an alcohol wipe? Are you tying off? We have a couple of different sizes of syringes, depending on what drug people are using and how they're using it. Just because I think that even if you're having to use on a daily basis to get by, that you still deserve a choice somewhere. <laughs> so there's a couple of different sizes of syringes that are better or for your body, depending on what you're using or how you're using it. So yeah, that's, you know, and people are usually weirded out the first time because they're not used to talking so openly drug use. So I was also curious, I don't know a lot about, um, and I could be mispronouncing this too, um, naloxine? Naloxone. Naloxone. Could you explain how that works and what the purpose is? Yeah. Naloxone and Narcan are the same thing. One's a generic, one is the name brand. We have the generic, so it's naloxone, and it's an opiate inhibitor. So any opioid that someone is taking, if if they're overdosing on it, opioids go to the part of the brain that stops your breathing. They arrest your respiration. You stop breathing. That's how people die from overdose of opiates or opioids. And what naloxone does is 
it gets into the body, whether it's an injection or uh, a nasal atomizer, and it goes to that same part of the brain and it stops the uptake of the opioid. Like it just blocks it. And so it takes a minute and people will come to right away. They'll just literally, they'll take a breath and come to. <laughs> it wears off in 30 to 90 minutes. So we give two doses. In case, number one, they've had way too much to start with, and it takes two doses to bring them back. And then usually it only takes one dose. But if the body hasn't metabolized the opioids in the system within that 90 minutes and that medication wears off, they can also overdose again. Oh, I wasn't aware of that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's why we do we do a, a little training with everybody that we um, assign our kits to and we go over that. We go over rescue breathing because because one, once the breathing stops, the heart can still beat for a while. We don't teach um, compressions because their heart is still beating, but the getting the oxygen in and rescue breathing is really important. This is what you do during the workday. I mean, one of the, the services you offer. Yes. Yes. That's one of the things that we do. We've done training in homeless camps. We've done trainings in parking lots at the park. We've done... We've done them in hotel rooms. We've done them in our cars. <laughs> wow. Wherever we can, wherever we can try and um, meet people where they are, that's that's where we'll do them. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't aware of services like what you offer until a few years ago. I mean, I've, I've heard it referred to as harm reduction, of course. Mm-hmm. But another thing I didn't realize was that it makes people mad and they get really bitter because they think that the work like what you offer just enables people to keep using. Uh-huh. But I'm wondering, can you explain like why you would disagree with that? We sort of come from the thinking that people are going to do what they're going to do until they are done doing it. The law isn't going to stop people. The their families aren't going to aren't going to stop them. Like it's some internal thing. People are going to do what they're going to do until they're done. And that kind of goes with all, you know, gambling addictions and sex addiction and shoplifting and, you know, crimes. People are going to do what they're going to do until they're done doing it. So just because somebody doesn't have a a clean syringe or um, whatever they need to get their drug into their body, it's not going to stop them from using. It's like saying, if I don't have a glass, then I'm not going to, then I'm going to not drink wine. So we come from that place where if people are going to do this, and we know they are, and opioid addiction is so hard to stop, once you're addicted physically, then you're addicted, and people will go to just about any lengths to continue their their needs met until they can figure out how to stop if that's what they're going to do. So in the meantime, we can prevent them from overdosing and dying. We can prevent them from getting diseases that then they could pass on to their children or their families, their spouses, you know, people they live with. If we can keep them safe or using, then they have a chance to recover. Also, the syringe exchange um, programs, when you look at how many needles we take off the streets a year, people are just shocked, just shocked. And again, it goes back to people of helping them take care of themselves and learning how to take care of themselves. They're going to use with or without my program. They're just going to be sick and they're going to be in the emergency room and our tax dollars are going to pay for that. And kids are going to get poked and, and people who have nothing to do with drug use are going to get stuck. And 
everybody doesn't realize how the community is affected. But that's, there's a lot of syringes taken in off the streets. And there's a lot of people that come and talk to us that do get into programs that can help them stop using. I'm enabling them to not contract a disease. I'm enabling them to have to access a safe place where they can talk about maybe what started their drug use to begin with. So we're trying to enable, we're trying to empower them to take better care of themselves. And every little bit that you can talk to people and they can take care of themselves better, and then they feel like somebody cares if they're taking care of themselves better, then they start to feel a little better. They start to consider, well, maybe I could cut back. You know, every little bit, it's just every little bit. And we give credit, every little piece of credit that's due, we give it. Great. You're using tourniquets now, even sometimes, and you were never using them before. That's great. It's better for your veins, better for your body. It's baby steps. The way that I look at it, most of the clients that we have that utilize our program, they don't have a choice to use or not use. But what they do have a choice of is if they can come get a clean syringe or not. They have a choice to come talk to us about what's going on, you know, or not. Never thought of it that way. It sort of it gives them a sense of empowerment. I mean, however small. Yes. And when people get clean for a while and then they fall off the wagon and they come back and their head is low and, and they're dragging their feet and they're very ashamed. And we just say, we're really glad to see you. I'm sorry that it didn't go like you wanted it to long term, you know, but, but you'll be able to get back there for today. Thank you for coming in and, and at least you're taking care of your body better. And, you know, how can we support you? Is there something, you know, do you think that we can do to help you access treatment again? Let us know. That kind of thing. We just have to try and just make it safe. Like, And then I always ask, like, what made you pick it up again? And sometimes people know, sometimes people don't. But we're going to we're gonna call it what it is and talk about it. That's what I always say. We're going to just call it what it is and we're just going to talk about it. And then it doesn't get lost. And then people continue to have a little hope for themselves, which is important because many of them don't have hope at all. Yeah. Something that stuck with me since uh, since we connected, you really seem to have a fondness for, for the people that come to you. Uh-huh. And I mean, I guess in a way, you, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I guess it's a little odd to, to want to see regulars, but... I just know some of the the ways I've seen you talk about some of the people that you've served has been very touching. Like, how often do you s- see these people? Some people I see twice a week or three times a week. And some people I'll see once a month. A few of them I see every week. And I imagine you get some that just come once or twice and that's it. Yeah. But there are lots and lots of people that we see on a on a pretty regular basis, whether it's a few times a week or once a week or you know, every few weeks. And it's always good to see them. When I see them, I know they're still alive. You know, and sometimes they'll come in and say, you know, if I haven't seen them for a long time, I always ask, have you been? Where have you been? You know, what's been going on? And maybe they went to prison for a while, or maybe they were clean for a while, whatever it is. And we always assure people that we're just as good clean and sober support as we are support while they're using. Mm-hmm. Because using is what they do. It's not who they are. <laughs> right, right. Some people have never had that concept before. So we always say we support you as an individual. We support who you are, regardless of what you're doing or not doing. Do you ever have people come back and thank you? 
Yes, yes. And, and oftentimes those folks come at just the right moment. Because, you know, every now and then I'll stop and I'll ponder, is this what I'm supposed to be doing with my life for the greater good? Is this where I am most useful to humankind? Is this what's best for me? And about the time that I throw that question out to the universe, someone comes walking in my door with two years clean and, or, you know, or something like that and, and thanking me and wanting to know how they can give back or support other people. And That's great. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's funny how that works that way. <laughs> so I guess that leads me to my next question. What's a change in society that you like to see happen for the people you serve? Like what, what would help out the most? What would help out the most is, is simply if people stopped looking the other way. If more people would say hello or offer a sandwich, <laughs> if people could be a little more open-minded about these are individuals, they're people too. They, they were someone's baby at one time. If I could change anything, I would change that people could look at addiction and people who are experiencing addictions as as human beings, period, you know, without without all of the judgment of, oh, they could stop or why don't they just quit or they're losers or, you know, they're fill in the blank. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. Uh-uh. No, not at all. So if someone's listening and maybe they want to change their view on the types of people you serve or to help you, you know, spread that message of compassion, would you have any recommendations on something they could do? He has. I tell, I tell people this when they ask, what can I do? What can I do? I say, go buy a sandwich and a Coke and go sit down with the person on the curb and say, here, here, I brought you some lunch and I'm going to eat my lunch with you. Or, and I know there's a big fear factor. Just talk to someone, talk to someone who's, you know, on the street or talk to someone in your family. If there's, if you'll have family who are suffering from, from an addiction, those people don't need hate. They need love and they need strong boundaries. And it's important for us to be able to take care of ourselves so that we can have that to offer other people. And it's hard because in, in families, when someone's addiction is sort of taken over, there's anger and there's hurt and there's fear. Sometimes we, as as the family person who's not using, need to deal with, know that those are our fears. Those are our emotions. We have to own those. And the person who's acting out and using, that person needs to know that we love them. There's a way to do it and not be punishing. Right. So what would be the best way to follow either you or the AIDS Outreach Project online? Um, probably go to our Facebook page and just like our page, the AIDS Outreach Project or Snohomish County Syringe Exchange Program. They can leave a private message there as well. And, and, don't be, and not be afraid at any point if somebody wants, doesn't understand something or, or wants to talk, to talk to somebody in person, leave, leave us a message and we'll call back. Or they can, go, or they can look up the, their local syringe exchange program. There's many of them across the United States. Yeah, is there a network? There is. The North American Syringe Exchange Network is uh, the network that we belong to. People, people can Google syringe exchange program or needle exchange in their area. And uh, there are many, many across the United States. It's a pretty common program. 
Is there anything I haven't asked you that you'd like to talk about? I don't think so. Not off the top of my head. <laughs> okay. I just really, really appreciate your interest and your your wanting to know and your questions. And, and I, I really hope people who who hear this will just consider that people don't mean to hurt other people, but addiction is big and it's scary and it's it's a it's important to learn. It's important to learn about addiction and what the addict themselves uh, is going through, and then how to best take care. It's it's really important because that's where healing takes place in families. Well, I'm not making this up just because we're talking, but you've been one of the people that I've been looking forward to talking with the most. So I really appreciate how generous you've been with your time and for all the work you're doing. And I really mean it, like you, you just following you and how you talk about the people you serve. It's really been inspiring to me. So I appreciate it. Thank you, Josh. That, that makes, that means a lot to me. I always, um, I always think everybody's path that I cross is here to teach me something. Every day I go to work, I think who's going to teach me what today. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> likewise, I appreciate your work as well. And I uh, love the podcasts. Yeah. Glad to do it. Well, thank you so much, Cherie. You're welcome, Josh. And I will uh, I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you later and I'll see you online. All right. Sounds good. All right. See you around. Good night. This is The Plural of You. I'm Josh Morgan, and the show's website is pluralofyou.org. That's all for now. Thank you for being kind today. Take care. <laughs>